0: Great, okay, I'd like to welcome uh, everyone uh, here this evening. My name's Peter Krubowitz. Um I'm the director of the uh, U.S. Center here at the LSE and a professor of international relations. Uh, the center is sponsoring uh, tonight's uh, lecture with the generous support of the um, U.S. Embassy Union. Uh and we're very pleased to be bringing tonight's speaker, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, to you. Um, Professor Crenshaw is Distinguished Professor of Law uh, at uh, the University of California, Los Angeles and Professor of Law at Columbia University. This term, she's also wearing um, a third hat. She's here at the LSE as a Centennial Professor with the Gender Institute. Um, And in addition to her teaching post, and I think she's doing this simultaneously, she was telling me she's going to go back to New York temporarily uh, deal with some work there. She's also the director of the Center of Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies in Columbia and co-founder uh, and, I guess, co-director of the African-American Policy Forum uh, in New York City, uh, also in Columbia. Um, as a leading international authority on uh, civil rights, um, race and, and gender, um, and race uh, and law, Her scholarly work has uh, appeared in um, numerous um, prestigious uh, law reviews such as the Harvard Law Review, National Black Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, uh, and Southern California Law Review. She's compiled a long list of honors and uh, fellowships including uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, Ira Glasser Racial Justice Fellowship. Uh, the J. William Fulbright uh, Fellowship Distinguished Chair for Latin America uh, in Brazil, and Professor of the Year at UCLA, not once, but twice. Um, She's well-known in international and academic circles, but as I learned last night on that font of all wisdom, Wikipedia, okay, I admit it, I read it, Um, she's also highly regarded by her, um, university colleagues, um, alas, something that we cannot all say, uh, her colleague, uh, Lance Liebman, the former dean of the Columbia Law School and a renowned scholar in his own right, um, has praised uh, Professor Crenshaw as a leading law scholar who has shed important light on central issues of civil rights law. And I can tell you that that fellow knows something. He's my cousin. (laughs) Um, So we invited uh, Professor Crenshaw here tonight to talk about race in America and what we might expect going forward uh, after Obama leaves office. Um, The title for tonight's lecture is Race Reform and the New Retrenchment, the Perils of Post-Racialism After Obama. Um, For those of you on Twitter tonight, the suggested hashtag is uh, LSEUSRace. I'd ask everybody if you would put your phones on silent um, so as not to disrupt the event. That'd be great. They're recording this, and if there are no technical difficulties, it actually gets um, uh, – it'll be made available uh, within a, a few days. Um, as usual after the lecture, uh, we'll open it up to, um, to question uh, and answer everybody. You'll have a chance to put um, their questions, you'll have a chance to put your questions to Professor Crenshaw. I'll do my level best to get as many people in. We'll probably try to cluster uh, questions, I mean, kind of given everything that's going on in American politics right now, I imagine that there'll be a lot of questions for her. Uh, So with that, please uh, join me in giving Professor Crenshaw a warm LSE welcome.
1: Thank you, Peter, for that kind introduction. I'd also like to thank all of the institutions that played a role in bringing me back, um, the U.S. Embassy and the Gender Institute as well. Um, and thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, it's always a pleasure to be invited back somewhere. And so um, I'm uh, honored to to have this opportunity. Um, so it, it also presented a bit of a challenge because when I was here, I think it was in 2014, um, I spoke at length about intersectionality. I spoke about some of the contemporary challenges that were being presented by gender exclusive policies unfolding in the US that were racial justice policies. Um, I spoke at great length about My Brother's Keeper, uh, which is an initiative uh, under the auspices of the White House that is designed to address Um, youth that have been left behind. And I talked about how that having been left behind was framed almost exclusively as boys being left behind, which they are, boys of color, Um, but the problematics in framing that in a way that left out girls of color. Um, So there's much to report about what's happened Uh, since 2014. We've uh, had a campaign called Why We Can't Wait that was designed to draw attention to the ways that girls and women of color um, are being impacted by a range of policies and conditions. Um, And that uh, work has unfolded in in ways that are somewhat promising. But um, as readers and observers from afar might surmise, um, that moment was simply the calm before the storm uh, that's developing now. Um, the political discourse in the U.S. more broadly uh, around race, around gender, uh, around gender identity and class has opened up a wide and troubling divide, one which is, uh, which is unpredictable uh, and full of rancor. So this, is, this moment is a far cry from the celebration that celebrated um, the uh, coming of the Obama administration. Um, there was much enthusiasm about what the Obama administration would bring and in particular what it symbolized and what it represented. However, if you're watching what's happening now, um, you have to raise some very serious questions about whether the hopes and the predictions that many people had when we were celebrating in that moment um, have borne out, and if not, why not? Now, for those who believed that the election of Barack Obama brought about an age of post-racialism, the dynamics now, I think, um, can produce a debilitating uh, case of aspirational whiplash. Uh, The pundits then declared that his ascendancy represented the realization of Dr. King's dream. Now, a new presidential hopeful has ridden to the pinnacle of American politics on a message that implores voters to take their country back from a president who is not really quote unquote one of us, from a president who um, has an agenda, an un-American agenda particularly. From the right, membership in explicit hate groups, if you can distinguish them from some party politics, is rebounding after decades of decline throughout the latter half of the 20th century. Voters for Trump have said, Um, that they believe in his frank talk, they like it, that he tells it like it is. So we have to assume that many of the the things that Trump is saying and telling reflect deep aspirations and beliefs of a significant part of the American public. Now, at the same time, there is activism, activism um, on the streets, the movement for black lives, Say Her Name, and other mobilizations Are giving voice to the continuing significance of racism and pushing back against what we might call the post-racial moratorium on all racial protest. For some, this unfortunate series of events is at odds with all of the aspirations around post-racialism and indeed at odds with American idealism uh, writ large. One of the registers of resistance against what now is known to be Trumpism is that this is not who we are. This runs afoul of everything we stand for, our constitution, our laws, our culture. It sets us back, many of the critics have been saying, and it should be resisted with everything we have. Now, there is much to be said about the hand-wringing that's happening now around Trumpism. The raw racism in the claims that we are taking back our country, the conspiratorial madness of the birtherism movement, the breathtaking disrespect of calling the president a liar in Congress, all constitute the indignities of a new uh, performance of being president while black. These are all deeply, deeply troubling developments. The rise of racist populism is a devastating turn in American politics, one that will extend its shadow across American society regardless of the outcome of the upcoming election. But there is a way that Trumpism is not really at odds with, quote-unquote, who we are nor is it entirely a repudiation of post-racialism. Rather what I want to share with you tonight is that it is a synthesis of some of the same impulses that facilitated the entry of post-racialism into the American lexicon. Indeed post-racialism along with many of the political performances that are spiking in today's politics are articulations of an antecedent project in law Supreme Court doctrine in particular that was also framed as a retaking or a taking back of our Constitution. This was the silent but deadly ideological war led by radicals such as former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia and current Chief Justice John Roberts in an organized effort to reclaim constitutional law from the clutches of civil rights visionaries such as Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court Justice and architect of the groundbreaking case of Brown versus Board of Education that struck down school segregation and also William Warren who was the Chief Justice that oversaw the court during this time of constitutional expansion. Now these dynamics are shaped around an ideological project called colorblindness. It's a project that reinforces a baseline in which racial power is rationalized and largely insulated from law-based redistribution or even political redistribution. Colorblindness and post-racialism are, as I will argue, far from opposing ideas. I will suggest that post-racialism is simply a popularized version of the colorblind project, albeit a concessionary move that emerged as a political rhetoric to lift up the symbolic value of having elected a black president, while at the same time muting critique of the American racial order. Now, I offer this reading as a backdrop, primarily because I want to reframe the rise of Trumpism, as well as reframe the significance of Black Lives Matter. In particular, I want to ask what are the modes and the products of racialization that situate the assertion, the simple assertion, that Black Lives Matter as a discourse of resistance. After all, one could think of Black Lives Matter as just an observational fact. Yet we all know that the underlying reality that's expressed through the claim Black Lives Matter is not the idea that racism no longer shapes social reality, but the fact that it, in fact, does. Now, I'm reading and talking as a critical race theorist, so I read Black Lives Matter as a discourse of resistance that puts into question Ideological frames that have suppressed and stigmatized racial justice agitation. While at the same time, these politics have produced the very dynamics of racial repression that give rise to the protests in the first place. It's this duality that I want to interrogate. The ideological suppression of racial resistance on one hand and the ongoing project of producing race and racism on the other hand. So, in exploring the backdrop under which Black Lives Matter resonates, I want to situate work that is critical race theory and also intersectionality, that deals with traditional academic disciplines and also within disparate spheres of public policy. Now, for the non-academics among us, I'm going to break it down and say this. Here's a less wordy and equally accurate description of what I want to do in this talk. This is a critical race theorist guide to the post, racial world in the United States Now I'm going to start with a few possible ways of thinking about um, the uh, current moment and some of the challenges uh, that we have So um, just in case you haven't been following um, our uh, presidential campaign um, Donald Trump is now the front runner for the Republican nomination uh, Donald Trump is also uh, the front runner for saying all the things that some people think many people want to say, but haven't yet had the opportunity to do so. Um, uh, Trump rallies, in case you haven't been following, um, have been um, sites of, of uh, violence. Some see it as agitated by violence by the uh, presidential campaign himself. Um, He has promised to pay the legal bills for people um, who have been uh, prosecuted for violence. Um, He has explicitly used racist frames as a way of talking about immigration. Um, His most famous, or at least one of the earlier ones, it's kind of hard because there's so many. Um, He associated Mexicans um, as problem people uh, that bring in drugs, crime, and rapists. Um, And he has basically been the, 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 the voice for the idea that this is our country. Anyone who doesn't look like us, think like us, worship like us, um, has to get out of the country. So the uh, proposal to um, exclude uh, Muslim immigration, uh, the proposal to build a wall um, uh, around uh, our border with Mexico, they're just a few of the examples um, of what uh, Donald Trump has brought to the table. Um, so it raises a question now of um, what is post-racialism? right? Um, Is this at odds with post-racialism? Does it suggest that um, we were utterly premature and silly um, to think that the election of one black president was going to spell the end of racial history in the United States? Um, And so it requires us to think a little bit about what the various ways that post-racialism has circulated within political discourse Um, has been. So one is the idea of post-racialism as mission accomplished. So in this idea, um, post-racialism is uh, the notion that um, we were once a racial society and now we're not. It's just uh, anti-post, right? So before everything uh, was about race and now it's not. So if that's the version of post-racialism then one might think that uh, some of the ways in which post-racialism had been uh, framed in the past as being beyond race Uh, might uh, present itself. So one way in which this idea of getting beyond race was supported in Supreme Court doctrine was in school uh, desegregation cases where the Supreme Court um, said that schools were required not only to stop segregating but to actively dismantle root and branch any vestige of a dual school system In other words, not just stop doing what you did but actually fix what you have created so that you can no longer tell the difference between a school that was historically a black school and a school that was historically a white school. So it was the idea of eliminating root and branch every possible vestige of white supremacy in our school system. Now, that was an expansive view of the constitutional right against segregated schools, it was one in which the Warren Court embraced and went about the project of dismantling the dual school system. It is not a vision of racial transformation that you can say by any stretch of the imagination characterizes American society in this post-racial moment. It is absolutely clear that the vestiges of past discrimination um, in housing, in criminal justice, in health, in education are still evidence of past discrimination and current discrimination. So it's absolutely clear that when people are saying post-racialism, they're not saying it in the same way as the mission accomplished idea. So what else is being said when people talk about uh, post-racialism? Well, um, there is the Will Smith idea, that great social theorist. Uh, who basically uses post-racialism as a no-more-excuses idea. Um, If a black man can be elected to the highest office in the nation, then there are no excuses for anyone else not being able to achieve anything less than President of the United States. Um, So that idea is that when Barack Obama entered the White House, We all entered a land of wine and roses where there was no longer any other racial barrier that could hold anybody back. So what do we make of the consequence of the fact that there are still racially stratified systems, um, economies, institutions throughout society? Um, Well, the continuing agitation around that is what is framed as excuse, right? So the no excuse line goes along with the notion Um, that we have remade our social order. Now, um, that's obviously uh, problematic as well. Um, The main thing that happened politically when Barack Obama entered the White House is that the Senate lost its only African-American senator at the time. Um, And pretty much the rest of American society stayed pretty much the way it was. Um, So much for the no excuses line. Now there have been lots of other ways in which uh, post-racialism has been framed. One is um, the idea of sort of a post-racial pragmatism. Um, And that idea is the idea that okay we still have racism in American society we still have the vestiges uh, of a history um, of white supremacy but at this point the main way that people of color can move forward is to navigate within and between find those opportunities um, be the rose that grows through the concrete that's a far more effective way of navigating race than in the straight frontal agitation around uh, racial discrimination, seeking racial justice. Um, So this is an idea that some have attributed to uh, the president's uh, campaign itself, the idea that he was not running um, as a black uh, nominee, but as a person who happened to be um, of uh, African American uh, and white descent, um, that one needn't directly confront or talk about race unless one has to um, and in fact he did have to uh, in his famous Philadelphia speech but even in that speech the idea was we are just American people. Um, We might have different backgrounds. We have different uh, concerns. The challenge for people of color is to frame their advocacy around universal ideas around ways that appeal to uh, the average uh, white American rather than making a special case um, for uh, African Americans and other people of color. So it was a kind of frame that stepped away uh, from agitation, away from naming uh, ongoing racial problems and instead inviting uh, people of color to create a new language a new positionality around demands for inclusion. Now there's much to be said. Um, about this idea uh, of post racialism um, as as maneuver uh, rather than confrontation, uh, those of you who are uh, grociest in the in the in the building will hear in that um, the, de- the b- debate between whether we try to have a war of opposition or a war of maneuver in the context of race. This is all about maneuver and maneuver without naming maneuver without um, critiquing now this um, also leads to another problem called post-racial entrapment. Um, And some of you might have remembered uh, that in the first few uh, months of the President's um, uh, administration, one of his uh, friends and notable um, uh, academic, Skip Gates, was arrested uh, in his own home, uh, effectively for uh, talking back to a police officer. Um, Even though what he was talking back to the police officer about was whether he was, in fact, in his own home, uh, pointing out the pictures on the wall, uh, which featured uh, him and notable people, Um, it was obvious that this was a man of some Um, uh, notoriety and he was in his own home. In any event, he was arrested and it created uh, a huge controversy uh, in the United States that would eventually uh, come back again in the context of Black Lives Matter. But this was a controversy over the ways that race and punishment were being deployed in the surveillance and the treatment of people of color. Um, The president made a very... um, a very uh, very small comment in the scheme of things that the officer had acted stupidly in arresting Skip Gates in his own home and it let out a firestorm of controversy which he was forced to walk back and the walking back resulted in this um, beer summit Um, I also um, you know feel kind of sorry for the vice president who had nothing to do with it but he was roped in uh, to the beer summit to make it sort of this nice symmetrical balance of uh, two white guys, two black guys just sitting in the White House having a beer Um, and so that's how that whole situation wrapped up largely um, I would argue because of the outcry by many who believed that their vote for Barack Obama was a vote for the end of racial grievance politics it was an end to the kind of um, having to uh, listen to complaints about race and he was entrusted as the person who would drawn in to to this kind of rhetoric so many were disappointed and outraged uh, that the president would uh, weigh into this at all and if so and, and given that he did weigh into it. Um, on behalf of those who were criticizing the police officer's action as racist. So um, post-racial pragmatism has its limits. One becomes entrapped when one makes the claim or allows it to be interpreted um, as racial problems are no longer going to be um, articulated or at least I will not be the source of criticism around race. On the rare occasion when you might want to speak about race, you then become a trapped, or entrapped or as some might say um, hoisted on your own petard. Um, so there are a range of other ways that uh, race card playing uh, has been used to suppress discussion and discourse uh, around race. There is uh, the idea that post-racialism uh, brings about the end of race because it ends the idea that there is any such thing as race. Um, There are other ideas that post-racialism brings about uh, the end of American race politics because it's now much more cosmopolitan. There are any number of ways that these cards have been played to end discourse around race. Now um, the one that I most want to pay attention to uh, in thinking about what's happening today is the sanctioning repression and erasure uh, around post-racialism. And that's basically the idea um, that one can talk about race uh, but you cannot talk about racism. There is a distinction between acknowledging the ongoing differences between groups and some of these differences actually might be cultural or behavioral differences, one can talk about that, but one cannot talk about racism. One cannot talk about power dynamics that are associated with this idea. So if we talk about this somewhat as a formula, um, race talk without racism amounts to, you can make a claim that a certain group, say, is falling behind academically. You make a further claim that that falling behind is going to be related to long-term consequences either in the employment sector or long-term consequences with respect to mass incarceration. Um, You acknowledge that this is an unfortunate disparity. It is an inequality. But you take racial power out of that mix. You don't talk about these disparities or inequalities as products of institutional forms of exclusion. You don't talk about them as products perhaps of massive amounts of racial segregation. You don't talk about them um, in terms of evidence of ongoing discrimination in the workforce. You don't talk about these as historical products of discrimination and power in the past. You just talk about them as differences that are attributable to different racial groups when you put that formula together what do you get you basically get individual level responsibility you get cultural forms of intervention you might get something like mentoring but by and large what you're talking about is a problematic that rests in the body the homes or the culture of those who are excluded So the upshot of that um, uh, might be easier uh, to capture with um, a framing device that I like to use So and for those of you who have seen this before um, you know the answer so don't scream it out So I I, I like to use this, this is a a picture um, that I've uh, ruthlessly taken from a colleague of mine Frank Gilliam from the Frameworks Institute Institute. and it, it helps us think about uh, framing. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is that these cows are sick. Um, and I'm going to ask you now, who's responsible for the sick cows? So when you say something, the farmer. The farmer. Thank you. So the farmer, um, we think, is responsible when, first of all, we see a frame um, and we import our cultural social uh, inferences into that frame. So I tell you the cows are sick and you say, well, the farmer should go take care of it. His problem. So when I say, well, is it a public problem, you say, no, it's a private problem. If I say, well, should any other institutions be responsible, you don't know, it's it's the farmer's problem, His, his cow's, his problem. Maybe it's the cow's problem, you know, but in any event, it's not our problem. If I say, well, what will happen to us as a society? if we don't deal with the fact that the cows are sick you would say nothing will happen to us as a society. Again, not our problem. It's the cows problem, not ours. When I change the frame, your answers to a lot of those questions would probably be a little different. So now when I say who's responsible for the problem, you might say industry. Uh, When I say is it a public or private problem, you might say oh that's a public health problem. If I say, well, what will happen to us if we don't take care of this problem? You would say, well, we might all be impacted, ultimately, by this. If I say, well, what about the individual cows, right? Maybe they're not eating in the right place. Maybe they're listening to the wrong music. Maybe they're not enough Uh, bulls in the herd. You would say, garbage to all that. You'd say, this is clearly an environmental problem. It's a public problem. Um, It's not an individual level or cultural problem, it's a problem that we all have and one that we must address as a society. Now use that exact same um, framework to think about race. If we think about sick cows in terms of racial dis-ease, we think about dis-ease in terms of disparity, uh, inequality, Um, long-term consequences and short-term consequences One way of framing that disease is it's their problem It's what they do, it's what they watch, it's what they listen to It's how they build families or don't Um, It's about culture Uh, It's not about the environment, it's not about structure, it's not about history, it's not a public problem It's nothing we need to concern ourselves with And if we frame it more broadly Um, In terms of the broader picture, racial inequality disparities, the dis-ease is obviously not an individual level problem. It's not a cultural level problem. It's not a problem that can be solved by individual level interventions. It is a public problem, not a private problem. So this is a broader way um, of framing some of the challenges um, that we have Uh, in this particular post-racial moment. That wider view uh, of uh, structural, uh, institutional, cultural frames um, uh, uh, is uh, the kind of framework uh, that at one point um, was in ascendance and now uh, it is moving uh, to the margins of history. Which brings us to then um, the question uh, that I most want to raise, which is how is it, Um, that these various frames are playing out in American society today? How is it, importantly, um, that these are frames that the law has helped to produce and make real? So it's one thing to say that Donald Trumpism um, is the product of anger, um, a product of people who've been pushed outside of the economic system, uh, a product of a racist populism that is un-American. It's another thing to acknowledge the extent to which the actual laws that govern us, constitutional law in particular, have created many of these expectations, have amplified these expectations, and have insulated them against efforts to create public policy, both at the administrative and at the electoral level, to do something about the problem of the dis-ease that I talked about earlier. So I want to say something about what has happened in the backdrop that contributes to the moment that we have now. Um, So there are competing ideologies that have historically played out in American racial justice politics at the institutional level. Um, So one idea is the idea um, that uh, under our Constitution, there is no such thing as a creditor or a debtor race. Um, All we are is American. Um, And no American owes anything to anyone else. Now that was a position of Justice Antonin Scalia um, as articulated in a famous affirmative action case called Adoran versus Pena. It is in some way speaking back across the decades to another framing of American inequality. um, That one being that um, America has defaulted on a promissory note, insofar as her citizens of color are concerned, um, a check has been uh, returned to African-Americans marked insufficient funds. Now this is an often unknown part of Martin Luther King's speech at the March on Washington, in which he was essentially saying American society is in disrepair. American society is not Uh, a reflection of some natural distribution of uh, individuals who have skills rising to the top and those who don't uh, languishing at the bottom. American society is one in which the racialized structures historically continue to produce certain outcomes and the Constitution has promised that those negative outcomes will be repaired. So we are here at the March on Washington, he went on to say, to demand a recognition of the promise and a fulfillment of what was in effect the 13th and the 14th Amendment. Now I hope you can see these are two diametrically opposing ideas. One idea is we are in disrepair. Our current distribution is not natural. It's not normal. It's not fair. And it's not complete. Against another perspective that effectively says we have what we've got and that's all it's ever going to be and any attempt to actually try to intervene um, is itself problematic. It is itself creation of discrimination and unfairness. This is all a debate about the baseline. The baseline being, how do we think about the contemporary distributions? Do we think they're fair? If we think they are fair, then any effort to create different kinds of policies for inclusion, say, in higher education, or for jobs at high levels, um, or housing integration. If we think the underlying baseline is perfectly defensible then those kind of policies are going to be seen as preferential treatment. They're sometimes going to be framed as reverse discrimination. If on the other hand we take Martin Luther King's view that the current baseline is not natural, it's not fair, it requires correction and repair, then those kind of policies are not going to be seen as preferential they're going to be seen as necessary for equality. In fact, the failure to have such policies is going to be seen as discrimination. Now, um, it is often hard to make this argument in the context of policies where people are generally divided. So the baseline preference argument might be easier to see if we think about it historically. Um, Historically, um, a baseline in the United States for liberty was rooted in slavery. When you have a baseline rooted in the legitimacy of slavery, all other kinds of freedom-seeking actions are going to be framed as illegitimate. So for example, when slaves self-liberated, against a backdrop of freedom, that would be considered self-help. Against the backdrop of slavery, it was considered theft. That's why literally when people ran away, um, they, were, they, they sang a song called Steal Away to Jesus, people were trying to get lost as a way of achieving freedom, that was called theft, um, if you refused to work or broke a tool under a discourse of freedom, that would be seen as a work stoppage, a strike, in slavery it was called drapedomania, it was a disease People thought that if you didn't want to work for nothing, there was something wrong with you, as opposed to there being something wrong with the system. Um, agitation against slavery was called sedition. People were prosecuted and jailed for agitating against slavery. Right Now it would, would be called just what, free speech? Freeing the slaves was called taking of property without just compensation. It was unconstitutional. Right. Today it would be just called liberation. So these examples are just examples to show the way that the law constitutionalizes the baseline tells us how we think about the intervention. If the baseline is constitutionally legitimate then the interventions are usually framed as problematic either preferential or unconstitutional patently so. So from this example I hope it becomes a little clearer that many of the policies that today are framed as preferential or reverse discrimination are are framed because the underlying baseline accepts that the status quo is legitimate, accepts that the status quo is defensible and accepts that those who rely on the status quo are insulated from any expectation um, that their expectations might not be realized. Now, I want to go into to, to a length in explaining that because part of my argument is that much of what we're hearing in American society is simply an amplification of what had been said for the last 20 years at the Supreme Court level. To wit, through the voices of Um, uh, some of our Supreme Court justices. So um, let's think about um, access to higher education. Uh, Justice Scalia uh, made an argument just uh, the year before last in response to the University of Texas, um, which is a flagship university in Texas, wanting to maintain a modest uh, affirmative action program. um, The school said without such programs, the levels uh, of African American participation will plummet. And usually justices uh, really engage and talk about, isn't there another way? Um, Aren't you uh, simply, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, exaggerating how significant the response will be? Justice Scalia uh, actually went to the core of it and said effectively, maybe there shouldn't be that many African Americans at the University of Texas. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe they need to be somewhere else. There, there in that moment is a Supreme Court Justice effectively arguing um, that uh, thinking in terms of fully integrating our society and our institutions itself uh, is problematic. We don't really need to challenge our baseline uh, with respect to these issues. Colorblind jurisprudence thus is in many ways anti-structural. It doesn't look at many of the institutionalized reasons Uh, why there are so few uh, people of color in various institutions. It's a historical. It doesn't ask questions about how the processes in these institutions have been shaped at a period of time when people of color weren't participating in them. And so to continue them without adjustment is to effectively bring the past into the present. And it's naturalizing. It takes as a given uh, the expectations that many have had Um, that have come from that earlier period. This jurisprudence has also been used to strike down the Voting Rights Act, uh, which was the crown jewel of the civil rights movement, um, effectively claiming that uh, southern states that were subject to the Voting Rights Act um, had uh, been deprived of their dignity uh, by being lifted out of history as exemplars of racial discrimination. Now, that's notwithstanding the fact that there is historical and ongoing evidence of massive voter discrimination in many of these states. Um, In fact, in uh, the current electoral cycle, Um, uh, Dozens of new laws have been put on the books that will push uh, people of color disproportionately out of the voting booths. Um, These are, this is just a cartoon for some of them, but there's new voter ID laws, driver's licenses, marriage licenses, paid gas bills. All of these are thrown up as obstructions that are likely to have some impact on the, and the ability of people of color to actually vote. We are used to being able to read past experiences of, of voter suppression and pushing people out. The question is, are these contemporary versions of the same thing that, as you can see, cause long lines, discourage people, suppressing voter um, participation, are these going to be seen along the same lines? Um, Justice Scalia, Um, frames our concerns about voting rights as entitlement. The idea is once a law is created to facilitate uh, the integration of institutions like uh, the electoral arena, it creates an entitlement to it um, that is impossible to remove. This is talking about a piece of legislation uh, that was enacted um, at as individuals across the country were protesting the exclusion of African-Americans. Individuals um, risked their lives. Some of them died for the Voting Rights Act and it's now being framed um, effectively as an entitlement. And lastly, um, the idea that one cannot have an integrated institution and a competitive one. Um, In response to the University of Michigan saying that it was using affirmative action to integrate the uh, its uh, classes, um, Justice Scalia said look you can have a super-duper law school or you can have a racially integrated law school but you can't have them both at the same time. So this is a frame that continues to create super-duper as racially exclusive and integrated institutions as less elite, um, and, and the individuals in those institutions um, as not competitive. Now, I, I, I want you to um, understand that this uh, kind of rhetoric is not just at the Supreme Court level, but the Supreme Court makes it possible. It, It enforces, it creates the idea that the existing status quo is defensible. Um, But it doesn't do it alone. The media helps a lot. So this picture um, was a picture that appeared on the cover of Newsweek magazine uh, during the time that the last uh, big affirmative action case in Michigan was uh, being decided. Um, And as you can see, this is a picture of an African-American man, nicely dressed, Um, Spectacles looking very scholarly and the, the, the question is do we still need affirmative action? Ten ways to think about it now. Now the picture is giving you three ways to think about it right now. So think about what it's telling you. It's telling you that affirmative action is about race. It's not about gender. Even though affirmative action has been enormously important. Um, in creating access to uh, white women to higher education and beyond. It's telling you that affirmative action is about black people, not other people of color, even though some of the main cases, particularly Bakke, which took place in the University of California, had to do with Latinos and Asians, right? It's telling you that affirmative action um, is not um, about making up for class differentials but it substitutes race for class and it also tells you that it's potentially preferential not remedial. Doesn't look like this guy needs anything. Now you might say well you know that's just a picture they just chose that one you know let's not sort of read too much into it. Until you turn the page and look on the inside cover And you find out that this picture was staged. This is a model. This is someone that the photo editor decided to dress up in a particular way to tell the story that they wanted to be told. To raise the questions that they wanted to be raised. So this picture is telling a particular kind of story about the baseline, about what's preferential treatment, a particular way of imagining what the whole issue is about. Now if, if, if you can just think about another picture, what if the picture involved men and women, all kinds of races, people who obviously seem to come from different class backgrounds, which is what affirmative action is, the picture would create a different kind of conversation. So this is again just a way of suggesting that much of what's happening in the United States Um, around entitlement, around resentment has been generated uh, both at the level of doctrine and also at the level of media. Now this other picture, I shouldn't really have to explain it, but to the listening audience, I'll say. There is uh, a cover of a book. It's got several pencils on it. Um, Some of the pencils all are the same color and those pencils are all sharp. And There's one pencil of a different color and it's a dull broken pencil. This book is about mismatch. It's about whether uh, affirmative action policies put people of color in institutions where they cannot compete and it's essentially telling you that one of them doesn't belong with the rest of them and you can tell who that is by looking at the color. Again the language of who does or does not belong is very much part of our Uh, contemporary conversation. Um, If we go further and look at some of the arguments that are made on behalf of those who are claiming they've been unfairly uh, excluded, these are people who are not necessarily competitive. They're not making an argument that were it not for these policies I would get in because they can't make that argument, right. There are 200 people of color uh, with higher test scores than Abigail Fisher, the current Um, plaintiff who also didn't get in. The argument isn't that. The argument is even talking about race discriminates against me. Even having race as one factor undermines my dignity. Now again, this is a particular form of post-racialism. We're all the same now. So any talk about race undermines the well-being of all of us and it allows us to point to the few individuals that we think actually got access because of race as the source of our exclusion. So again, it's race talk without racism. It's a racist claim without having to be accountable for anything. So the African-American Policy Forum, in response to um, these arguments, created um, a a video, uh, a a cartoon that I'm going to show you just in a second. Um, And the idea was that we really need to have a new kind of conversation about baselines and preferences. Um, We can make all the arguments we want about why affirmative action is good for diversity, why anti-discrimination law needs to be expanded, why there need to be more uh, elected officials who are people of color. But as long as the conception is that these things are preferences, as long as the conception that the baseline is okay, as long as people have the small picture of the diseased cows rather than the broader ones, all of these arguments aren't really going to move the ball very much. So we took up the challenge of figuring out how to reframe constitutional law, how to reframe expectations, how to reframe the history of naturalizing racial inequality so that interventions that are meant to advance diversity and inclusion are not seen as preferential but are seen as necessary to advance um, anti-discrimination. So I'm going to show you this and then I'm going to tell you uh, in conclusion a particular uh, story um, about this that will um, suggest what post-racialism has in store for the future. So I will narrate for those who are listening. We're watching a video with uh, runners running around the track for several generations while um, runners of color are stuck at a stoplight until 1964. And as the runners of color engage the race, there's a cloud of discrimination that stops their path. And then rocky roads that stop their for momentum, which is labeled poor schooling. They run into a ditch, which is labeled underemployment. They fall into shark-infested waters, which is standardized tests. They run under bars, which is called mass incarceration, and in a school-to-prison pipeline. They seek to go to a rest area that's closed down by housing segregation. They encounter drug testing and are racially profiled. And finally, they run into a brick wall called early death. On the other side of the track, a people mover is being built. Connections, privilege, oh boy, contacts, and wealth. A white male runner is on that lane with a cup saying, Yale. He's being delivered to the finish line with a white female runner running but cannot win. And in the end, the victory uh, shots uh, show the white male runner on the people mover having won the race. And then a tractor shows up that is removing the obstacles. We frame that tractor uh, effectively as um, affirmative action. So um, we we we've used this uh, particular video um, across the country for many many years uh, simply to talk about the need um, to think uh, far more uh, critically about uh, race conscious policies. I'm going to end um, with a concern about what this uh, particular um, track uh, metaphor engendered in a place called Enrico County, Virginia. Um, Enrico County is just outside of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Those of you who are history buffs know that Virginia, Richmond in particular, uh, was the cradle of the old confederacy. It is the place, uh, it is the capital, it is Uh, If the Civil War had been won by the other side, uh, it would be the capital of the South. So um, Richmond is uh, no stranger to discrimination. Um, This uh, video was shown as part of a Black History Month celebration uh, to a group of um, high school students in two separate uh, sessions. Um, And by all accounts, the session went very well until uh, one parent became enraged that this particular video was shown. Um, That parent uh, complained uh, to the school board. Uh, The school board immediately investigated and banned this video uh, from ever being shown in in Rico County again. The claim was that this video um, uh, was a guilt video Um, that it uh, was a racist video, uh, that it undermined the confidence of white students in the class, um, and that it had no place in, in Rico County any further. Uh, I would like to tell you that this is the only example of censorship around racial justice, racism as a conversation as opposed to race. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Throughout the United States, uh, books such as Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, um, uh, Ellison's The Invisible Man, um, Critical Race Theory, um, have been banned in public schools. In Arizona, the entire uh, uh, Mexican-American studies program has been rendered illegal uh, by law. Um, The law effectively prohibits teaching anything that will engender resentment uh, to those uh, who receive the instruction or uh, encourage the overthrow of the United States government. Now there's (laughs) much we could say about this. One would be well basically teaching American history might engender resentment to the people who were there when The colonists arrived or um, teaching slavery might actually engender resentment on those who are the descendants of those ancestors Um, We could say that but but let's just go further The basic idea that we're going to end all discourse about race by undermining the ability to produce knowledge about race is one of the most threatening dimensions of this particular moment. So we're living in a moment where under the very ideals of American democracy, we're essentially saying that school districts can eliminate all effective education um, or at least provocative conversation about whether the outcomes in our current society are natural and defensible or perhaps the product of public policy and past discrimination. That is the biggest threat that we're facing now. It is the threat, fortunately, um, that Black Lives Matter has opened up, um, refusing the sort of post-racial accommodationism, refusing to have a time, place and manner limitation to how and when we talk about race and racial justice. It's also a space that uh, Say Your Name has opened up to include women and girls in the conversation about racial justice. But the real trouble that we have to worry about is the fact that whatever happens in this next election, this post-racial understanding of racial injustice will limit our capacity to engage each other in a productive way. So our challenge is to push back against all visions of post-racialism that allow for discourse of race and preclude any acknowledgement of racial injustice. Thank you.
0: Popular. That's a um, terrific uh, presentation. I suppose I, I'm going to open it up to questions, but I think I'd, I'd like to maybe just ask the the first one. Um, uh, well, I don't think the burden falls on him um, uh, alone. I'm I'm wondering, given that he's got less than a year uh, in office, um, what. I mean, what it is that um, President Obama, and especially given the structural problem that you have so effectively laid out here, I mean, what should, where should he invest, even if only at the rhetorical level? I mean, one of the things that struck me the other day when he gave the speech, the commencement address at howard, uh which is a very powerful um uh, speech, was where he ended up where he he said to the audience, "You guys, you have the numbers. you have the numbers and the way you need to think about the vote and um, that the path forward is in the electoral arena, and you know he just he seemed to come down like very hard on on that side. And I, I think in part you know the uh, this. I mean I think he's kind of taken the same position with Black Lives Matter when he met with the leadership uh, there as well that that somehow that needs to be translated that energy uh, needs to be translated into kind of from his perspective i think even the terms he used kind of practical electoral strategies and i mean do you see that as solution or more of the problem or or what
1: uh, both um so so uh, you're right to say that it's not all on him I I think mostly it's not Um, so this is not uh, meant as a critique of the president per se Um, but it is a critique of presidential politics uh, shaping racial justice politics that's the problem so um, uh, recall that in the early uh, months of the administration there was the the big question about what kind of policies were going to be uh, mobilized to deal with the, the horrible economic situation that was happening in the country. Um, and it was an economic situation that everybody suffered from, but people of color, black people especially, um, were, were suffering and still are. Um, uh, some of the studies suggest that with the mortgage uh, meltdown, African Americans lost about a third of their uh, net wealth um, and this is wealth had been built up uh, over generations. So, so there, there were particular ways um, that this, uh, this crisis was actually playing out uh, along racial lines as well. And, um, and in response to what have you to say uh, to and about um, this racial gap, it was frequently said, the president sometimes, but others, he's not the president of just black people. He's the president of everyone. That's absolutely true. Um, But at the same time, as, as not the president of black people, one cannot talk about what the president can and cannot say as the full template of what can and could be said and should be said by leaders right mm-hmm. so it is a, a real problem when he is first leader of black people and then leader of the free you know, world as people like to say I, I always cringe when I hear that um, and so you, you cannot be both at, at, at the same time and you shouldn't have to be so In the same way that um, the LGBTQ community um, lobbied and effectively forced the White House into supporting marriage equality by saying, we elected you, um, we support you, and and here are our demands, Um, the same thing might be said for uh, communities of color. But the problem is uh, the assumption that, you know, one of those pictures I showed was, uh, Martin Luther King and, and Barack Obama doing a high five, as though he is the uh, realization of all the aspirations of the civil rights movement. Well, if we can get to a point where we understand that the electoral strategy is but one dimension, right, of, of racial justice, those who are elected um, have one particular kind of role, but others have other roles, then, then I think it's, it, is, it makes sense for him to make the claim around electoral politics. But it also makes sense for Black Lives Matter and other people to say electoral politics don't necessarily be, needs to be where it is all at. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's effectively um, what a lot of them are saying. And I think they're right to say that.
0: Okay, good. Um, so we're going to open it up. Uh, what I would ask you is, we'll, we'll start here. Um, just briefly introduce yourself, Okay. Um, wait, wait for the mic. So the mic will come to you. Uh, just raise your hand and you know I'll, I'll catch you and keep you in a queue. Start
2: okay, right here. Uh, thank you very much for your amazing lecture. You are my hero. <laughs> okay. I have used your theory in my PhD which was on African-American literature back from the 17th century to the uh, 21st century so I read all the literature by African-Americans. Uh, I'm 95 Mohammed. I'm post-doctorate in King's College, now working on Arab-Americans. Oh. And I'm using your theory again, because apparently Arab-Americans suffer the same problem of African-Americans, but they are still uh, so invisible that most of the studies on um, the intersection of racial identity and gender Uh, excludes Arab Americans and I have asked the authors of two two or three books of these and I asked them why Arab American women and their gender problems are not really discussed uh, by those uh, critics and all of them gave me this answer that Arab American women are not really active uh, in writing and in promoting their issues however since the 90s Uh, and especially after 2011, uh, the problems of Arab-Americans came to the surface, Uh, racial discrimination, uh, stigmatization, everything was talking about Arab-Americans, Muslim-Americans, but still it seems there is kind of an academic negligence over the issue, and Mm -hmm. I want to ask why. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Um, There's a question right over here. We'll take uh, another one. Don't both be polite. Go ahead.
3: (laughs) Hi, my name is Magley, and I am a master's candidate in the Inequalities and Social Science program. It's a new program this year. I want to thank you so much for your talk. I've also used your work in my studies as well this year. It's been very, very helpful, so thank you so much. Um, My question is in relation to employment and the framing of race um, within the workplace, because as you mentioned, race is a public issue, not just a private issue. However, in employment spaces, especially in corporate office, you have the issue of how do we talk about race and mm-hmm. how do we address this within the office, within the, pub- the private space. Um, and so many policies such as diversity trainings mm-hmm. and efforts in that, in that way have been promoted. However, I do have friends who've been work- working in that sector. and have been doing diversity trainings and aren't really quite sure of how effective they are. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could speak a little bit about that and what you think might be a better way to address those issues.
0: And since you were so polite, we'll take a third question and then uh, thank
4: you. Um, my name is Joseph, I work here at LSC. Uh, I wanted to ask about the culture. So you spoke at the end about how in education, the idea of having a racial discourse is being shut down. I th- my opinion is I think you see some of that in the culture with the Oscars controversy and how that was tended to be shut down, uh, the reaction to Beyoncé's new, new songs and formation, also the, in the NFL and the Russell Wilson versus Peyton Manning disrespectful, that whole controversy. I think that's alive. I wondered if you wanted to comment on the cultural stuff and, and how that plays into what you're talking about.
1: Okay. Great, thank you for these great questions. Um, so I, I very much appreciate the the, the question around um, whether the marginalization of Arab women um, is um, a, a reflection of, of negligence, and I, I do see that as um, a frame that I'm not unfamiliar with um, i I want to complicate what we want to do about that. Um, So let me just speak somewhat autobiographically. Um, When I came into uh, the legal profession in the 80s I'm actually going to say that. Um, At that point there was a project called critical legal studies and there was a project called feminist jurisprudence Uh, Critical legal studies really didn't deal with race, although they um, set out a critical left uh, critique of law, uh, which uh, I was very uh, drawn to. Um, Feminist jurisprudence didn't really deal with uh, race either, um, but the way in which they read the law's role in producing gender and patriarchy, I was very much um, attracted to. Um, and so the question that that, that I, I had was, um, what is it in both of these projects that overlooks, underwrites, fails to investigate uh, the particularities that fell between the cracks? Like, what difference did difference make in it? Um, and 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 my um, my approach was to try to elbow in some space right? to say this is something that's missing um, and it needs articulation Um, but I I sure didn't want them to do it so so I wasn't trying really to um, see mainstream white feminists take a hand in writing about what black feminism would be, I, I kind of didn't want that um, and, at, and at the same time, while I wanted space within critical legal studies to actually take seriously the social construction of race along the same lines as they took seriously the, the social construction of class, while, while I wanted that acknowledgement, um, I did not want them to exercise what I wanted to be the project that people like me were doing. Um, And it's a a very thin line between critiquing the failure um, and asking them to do it. So I I think the critique of the failure um, is an important one and it should focus on here is what happens when a feminist project or critical race uh, theory product um, has not interrogated these sets of issues. Here are the ways the theories goes wrong. Here are the ways it's not particularly productive. And here's how, what I'm gonna do to actually add content to an overall project that I'm sympathetic to. Um, I think that's a, um, a productive conversation. and and doesn't engender what I saw engendered with white feminists and critical uh, legal studies people. A lot of critical legal studies people just left they're like I don't want to deal with this anymore Um, and and I don't I don't condone that at all I think that if you are involved in uh, a critical project then you should be involved in every subsequent iteration of it but you know people vote with their feet Um, and I've also seen many times feminists nod their head but if that's not the work they do, they're not going to suddenly retool themselves and and do a different focal point of work, and I don't want them to. But I do want to have partnership, and I do want to say, here's how much I understand, and this is as far as I can go with my knowledge base, Where, where do you enter with your knowledge base, and what is it that we can produce collectively, you know, along these lines? So I think negligence sounds right, Um, but I do think a um, there has to be a period where there's critical mass of production that's that's where intersectionality came from critical race theory there was a critical mass Uh, and then beyond that there have to be the opportunities that are opened up by our allies to support the work that we do Um, on the uh, question of uh, employment and diversity so um, I think it's important that uh, I say that in the American context, the shift to diversity was a loss. Um, It took place in in, um, a case called Bakke versus California. And in the case, there were three other uh, rationales for race-conscious policies that the court completely repudiated. Um, One is that it's necessary to have professionals who serve the communities they're from because all the studies tell us that most people um, who get services tend to get services from people in their community who look like them. So the fact that there was such a history of underserving communities of color in the medical profession was one of the arguments. The other one was uh, correcting for discrimination in the other uh, educational institutions which would have produced uh, fewer candidates to uh, become a part of um, the medical school and the third was to integrate the profession. Um, when more people of color are in the profession different kinds of things tend to happen. Uh, we know that from the law profession critical race theory came because there were people of color who were finally allowed to become law professors. So these were three rationales that the court systematically repudiated. The only rationale they held up was diversity and it's important that we think about the difference between the one they held up and the three that they repudiated. The one that they held up uh, was uh, an interest that the university had. So if the university can say, we really need these othered people in our classrooms so our classrooms are better, um, so our educational product is better, If we say that's why we need them, then we should be able to allow, uh, we should be allowed to figure out whatever we need to to get them there. So that's diversity for the purpose of the university, not for the purposes of the communities that have been excluded and have been underserved. So diversity for at least 30 years was the catch-all phrase for all manner of uh, sort of race-conscious uh, policy, both at the public education level and also in the private sector level. Um, and it still is the frame that people use. Um, the problem is that, first of all, it's, it, it doesn't take up the real questions of social justice. It doesn't take up the questions of uh, distribution and fairness. It doesn't take up the question of whether the actual employment policies are actually fair. The Only question it takes up, do we and can we pursue certain things to get at least a critical mass of people of color. So I'm not opposed to diversity. Um, I think diversity serves its own purposes but it is not a robust frame around which racial injustice can be thought about and talked about. So it's not surprising um, that there's a whole industry of diversity training um, that basically reduces it to how many color marbles are in a jar. I mean, it's those those kinds of um, uh, uh, move, movements away from where these demands actually came from um, that's so problematic. The last thing I'll say is it's one of the things that is going to be debated in the current Supreme Court case we have. When a university says they're doing something uh, for diversity, um, Justice Scalia had a whole list of questions and litigation strategies around that. Like, well, what do you do in a university that claims it's using affirmative action for diversity and they still have uh, organizations for students of color and graduate ceremonies just for students of color and departments that study um, students of color? That's a contradiction, he says, between we need the students for diversity, but yet we're gonna let them do all this race stuff over here. So it's, it's not the perfect solution, um, and, and universities have been really challenged to come up with a vision of diversity that actually shows that across the institution, um, the classes are fully diverse and the student body um, organizations are diverse and the, the faculty is diverse. That, that, that's something that most universities have a hard time showing. And what that will do is for some of them, I mean, they don't have to do it. Um, and many of them have simply backed away. Like that, that's too much for us to have to prove. And that's the problem with, with having a, a justification that is somewhat at odds with some of the real reasons why there are so many demands for integration. Um, and finally, on the question of, of culture, so you couldn't be more right about how many of these issues are playing out on the on the cultural terrain. Um, so I showed you some some pictures that do some of that work. There was a another controversy that just happened last week. There was a group of black female cadets um, who graduated from West Point, and there's a tradition in West Point of taking. Um, these pictures, they, they're, they, I, I guess the original pictures uh, were like a hundred years ago where cadets uh, strike a pose um, that, I guess, uh, shows their readiness for combat to do what they're going to do. They're kind of stylized poses. And different groups of graduating classes take lots of different versions of this. So uh, this particular group of, of black female cadets uh, in all their regalia um, took several pictures and one picture, they did this, raised fist salute. All hell broke out about this. Um, with um, one, one person who led the charge basically saying that um, they should be punished, they should be decommissioned, they should be kicked out of school, not allowed to graduate um, because this was political advocacy. Um, Others went as far as to say it's racist advocacy. Um, They went even further saying that they shouldn't be in command of uh, any troops because having a racist in command of troops is a bad thing, Um, which is strange given the United States, you know. Um, So it, it, it was a bizarre moment in which people were reading everything they possibly could onto this picture. Now, it didn't seem to help that other pictures emerged showing white uh, graduates in various poses including a raised fist um, pose. Uh, it didn't help that even one of the investigators uh, said that, well, you know, it's not the raised fist per se. It's how, the fact that they didn't take into account how people would react, which is basically saying they didn't take into account that they were black women doing it. I mean, that's effectively, you know, what's being said. So, so these cultural moments are really rich. You know, Beyonce doing the formation halftime video with afros, she didn't have one, but everyone else did. Um, <laughs> and race, it, to, to many people it was horror, horror, these are the racist black, black Panthers. There are two things going on. There's one, um, there are certain things that black bodies cannot do. That, that's effectively the message and it's a message that's actually being carried through in many of the controversies uh, around police killings Um, in any number of the police killings there are those who will want to rationalize it saying well he should have known that moving like that would have made the officers think that his life is in danger without ever dealing with the fact that well we do know that if a white person had done that he probably wouldn't have thought his life was in danger they just set aside the fact that there is racial double standardization going on here um, in what can and cannot be done so the raised fist salute is a problem for a black female body um, bending over to get the keys not slowly enough is a problem for a black uh, male body uh, being a, a person who is uh, having a mental uh, health crisis um, is a particular problem for you know certain bodies and not for others so we're, I think that the benefit of this is that we're able to say these are not racially equitable readings. Racial bodies are being read differently and that difference is not just located in the body, it's located in the culture, it's located in how it's looked at the gaze. This is the moment of racial power taking um, its seat at the table. It's not just, oh well, it's just you know different people um, uh, engendering uh, different kinds of ideas. So it's, it's useful, you know, in, in that regard. I think the broader challenge um, is that um, there is such a, a conviction in our society that um, we can't talk about that. We should try to navigate it without demanding uh, some kind of different set of interventions. So so I'll I'll end with this. The person who did the investigation and someone else defending them, you know, effectively said we're not going to punish them, but we're going to counsel them. So what do we think the counseling is going to be? You, you need to realize who you are, so there are certain things that you shouldn't do. What about counseling all the people who lost their mind over the picture? What about that, right? Um, or Beyonce, uh, the police officers aren't going to support her concerts anymore. What about counseling the police officers about not doing those jobs because they don't like a video that she did? So we don't have that quite that conversation anymore, which is my argument. It's part of a post-racial accommodation. You have to figure out how to fit, not how to contest.
0: We're, we're almost out of time, but I saw your hand go up. But you, get, you get the last question, and yeah. <laughs>
4: Um, yeah, thanks. Um, I'm a student from. I stand up? I'm a student from Sussex University, but I spent the last year in the United States. Um, so I was thinking about this a lot, and I just kind of—it's sort of two questions, but I'll try and merge it into one. Um, a lot of the problem seems to be that people don't seem to think of whiteness as a race, or white people don't seem to understand that that is it sort of relates to the cows example that you gave—that that is part of the problem, or that. The, the idea that whiteness is a race is part, very much part of the problem that needs to sort of be interrogated in educational context but also um, I was wondering kind of if you could bring that into how you thought if you think this is an international problem as well and how you think the situation in the United States fits in with that of the UK as well and with, with across cultures basically across contexts and how we can deal with this in education um, in a kind of international
1: way so thanks mm-hmm.
0: All in about two minutes.
1: Take time. Yeah. I'll take a, a sip to get going. Um, so I, so I, I, I see the problem about how whiteness is viewed in, in the states um, in two, perhaps contradictory ways. Um, on on one hand, um, I think what Trumpism is bringing out. Um, is 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 the lie behind um, the common claim? I don't see race. I don't think about race. Um, race is something that's primarily on the, the the minds of the others, not not us. Um, th- I think the ability of uh, Trumpism to uh, pull out that reservoir of white racial identity, uh, particularly as an aggrieved identity. Um, has has served an important purpose, um, which is to suggest that whiteness still is something of value that that many voters believe in, Um, many voters uh, see themselves as having lost Uh, something uh, either through having a president that they didn't think cared about them um, having an immigration policy that brings more others to the country um, so there's this zero-sum game more of them less of us more power for them less for us Um, it helps us see how in some of the more recent uh, opinion surveys that have happened lately um, that the majority of white people who were asked uh, said that um, the problem of discrimination against white people was as great, if not greater, than discrimination against black people. So there, there, there really is this moment where there's a sense that, um, uh, that there's a fragile sense of whiteness um, that exists and this fragility um, is uh, available to be mobilized Um, to express anger more broadly at economic marginality. This isn't new in the United States, but it is particularly interesting that it's coming after so many years of purportedly repudiating the idea of race altogether and just seeing us as all um, the same. Uh, The last thing I'll say about the U.S. piece, um, you can have a notion of whiteness that's not built around fragility. And it's still a white supremacist view. Um, uh, justice Harlan, for example, he is a justice who dissented in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the case where the Supreme Court upheld segregation um, as necessary for the peace and the order of the community. And Harlan uh, basically said, look, you know, we don't need segregation in order to become and remain dominant. Um, as long as the white race does what it does and is what it is, We got this. We are going to be dominant forever. So that was sort of a moment of a white supremacist claim that we now, we, um, some folks celebrate colorblindness. Colorblindness, as it was originally articulated, was not a racial egalitarian frame. It was white dominance from a position not of fragility, but from a position of we don't need this extra legal peace to maintain dominance we've got it and it's good for us you asked about international so um, i'll say just a piece i I'm, my specialty is the u.s so i stay in good company when i just talk about that um, but but i will say that um, intersectionality has traveled um, somewhat and i always find it very interesting when i'm in europe um, particularly continental uh, Europe, uh, the, the the resistance to the idea that there is a racial project there. Now, now maybe this is you know the the problem of the home away kind of thing, right? So most of Europe's racial projects happen somewhere else. But it's assuming that it happening somewhere else doesn't mean that the metropole is a place of race. So. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about how to take up intersectionality and leave the race behind, you know, particularly leave the U.S. and and you guys get written into it sometimes. The U.K. also contributes a little bit too much race to the mix. Um, And I find it really um, uh, interesting that Class substitutes for race, but people don't see class as having racialized effects and race as having class effects. So, in taking up intersectionality without one or the other, people are making a non intersectional kind of move. Um, And I'll just end with that.